electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now, last call, a Bitcoin ETF actually approved. And we've got exclusive comments from a big CEO about it. Boeing CEO making a stunning admission, but will it be enough to win back investors? One stock to rule them all. As the MAG7 keeps popping, one strategist says there is one name you got to own. A crucial inflation report out tomorrow. Will it play right into your hands? Why Amazon may be primed to be the king of yet another business. Hertz suddenly selling Teslas at cut rate prices, but why? And if you want to land your dream job, there is one thing you need to do to help get hired. And we have it. all that and much more over the hour. So as always, belly up or buckle up and get ready because last call is up right now. All right, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. All that and much more coming up. But first, a major win for the crypto industry. And this time we really mean it. The SEC has officially approved Bitcoin ETFs. Comes after yesterday's false start when the SEC's X account was hacked by an unauthorized and unidentified individual who posted ETFs have been approved yesterday. Kay Rooney is back to break it down, what it might mean for the industry at large. And this time it's, it's actually real. That's right, Brian. Yeah, quite the week here. We had even more false starts today, though. The SEC reportedly posting this ETF announcement to its website and then taking it down. But we do now have that official green light. The SEC is allowing Bitcoin ETFs to trade on U.S. exchanges. The market's excitement has really been clear for months now. If you look at a chart of Bitcoin since BlackRock filed its application for Bitcoin ETF this summer, the price is up about 75 percent or so, slightly higher today in the wake of this news. It has been seen as a milestone, Brian, for the asset class. It's a legitimizing moment. It's a way to make crypto more mainstream and bring in potentially more safety and stability to these markets and potentially more institutional investors. You've now got the largest asset managers in the world approved as crypto ETF sponsors. You got BlackRock, you got Fidelity, Kathy Woods, ARK Invest, and Grayscale will now be able to convert its $27 billion Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC, into an ETF These are going to start trading tomorrow on CBOE, NASDAQ, and the New York Stock Exchange. And even though Gary Gensler, the chair of the SEC, did approve this, he did also sound hostile still towards the asset class. In today's statement, he starts out by saying that they disapproved more than 20 ETFs and those filings in the past. Although the new set of filings, he says, are similar, the circumstances have now changed. There was a key appeals court decision he pointed to where a judge found the SEC's move to deny These ETFs, what they called capricious and arbitrary, also said the SEC failed to adequately explain its reasoning for disapproving the listing of trading of Grayscale's proposed conversion in particular. Gensler now says he felt that the most sustainable path forward was to approve the listing and trading of these ETFs, which we got today. Gensler's message, though, it's still very much buyer beware. He said 
While we approved the listing and trading of these shares today, we did not approve or endorse Bitcoin. Investors should remain cautious about the myriad risks associated with Bitcoin and products whose value is tied to crypto. Meantime, Brian, Ethereum actually getting a uh, bump on the back of this news soared more than 15% following that announcement. Some are speculating that might be the next cryptocurrency to get this ETF wrapper, but we will see quite the week, Brian. Back to you. Now, that was kind of my question, Kate, and I'm going to put you on the spot because I know you, you don't know, nobody can know this answer except for the SEC, but you mentioned Ethereum, and I just wonder how far down the crypto line ETFs may ultimately go. Yeah, obviously, Ethereum there, maybe you get a Litecoin ETF, Solana ETF. I mean, Dogecoin, probably not. But you get my broader point. How far down the line could we end up going here? Yeah, talk about a milestone. If you got a Dogecoin ETF, Brian, I don't know what what would be happening. But it's a good point. This may now set a precedent in terms of the playbook to get some of these Ethereum ETFs approved. Fundstrat has done some work on this and looked at that as the next potential leg in this. It may be years away, but they now, the biggest asset managers in the world, have a playbook in order to get this approved. If they decide, you know, we're going to go ahead and try to launch more ETFs here, it's now been, the floodgates are sort of open and that's how they've described it. And that's what you're seeing in terms of the price of Ethereum. I highly doubt that any of these other really more speculative coins will get the same treatment. They talk about some of the underlying risk there, but mm-hmm. at least with Ethereum, that's very much being priced in and, and what you're seeing in terms of the bump there. But we'll see. You called it first though, Brian, if we get a Dogecoin ETF... I'm going to cite you as <laughs> that, the first would, to say it. It would be the first to say it in the last day on my job. Kate Rogers, thank you very much. All right, let's not bring Rudy, it in. Kate Rudy. There you go. Let's bring in Andrew Ross Sorkin for more. And I know you just did a, a big interview. We're not going to take all of it. You got your own show tomorrow morning, Andrew. We get it. But it's a big one. Uh, it is. Um, and it is because uh, I did speak with the Coinbase's uh, CEO, Brian Armstrong, in the last hour. It was a first on CNBC following the SEC decision. And uh, we want to show you just a piece of it for now, because I asked him about the way he sees this in terms of the magnitude of the moment. This is a monumental step for the crypto industry and for Coinbase, too. And the reason is that look, there's 52 million Americans who have been using crypto over the past decade. And I think they've been hungry for some kind of acknowledgement from government and the SEC in particular that this asset class is here to stay. And they finally got that. Um, It took a long time. I want to give a big shout out to Grayscale, which is one of the firms that pursued this in the court to finally get it to fruition. But it finally happened. Uh, We had a number of ETFs approved today. And of course, it was a big day for Coinbase, too, because we were named as the custodian in 10 out of 13 of these applications. So I think this means that over time, we'll see new pools of capital come into Bitcoin. But more importantly, um, we had a huge regulatory milestone that showed the legitimizing power of this industry. And so now the big question is uh, whether Brian's right, whether this turns into a, a broader path, meaning folks Uh, get involved in Bitcoin through an ETF and then ultimately get involved in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies at writ large. And and that's what he is effectively betting on at this point. You know, there was kind of a school of thought, Andrew, with with regards to Coinbase, that a Bitcoin ETF may not be the best for them, just kind of disperses investors. But the stock, as I'm looking right now, Coinbase is up four and a half percent after hours. So I 
you know, you're looking at sort of what does this mean for the big players like the stocks and the market maybe saying not too bad. Well, I think there's a couple of, of sort of cross currents that are happening here, right? It's a, it's a fascinating dynamic. There's the custodial business uh, that he's going to be getting out of this, which, which helps him. And there's this larger question of do people just get more involved in crypto uh, writ large if that's the case and they actually buy the underlying assets themselves, Coinbase becomes a very big winner. If, in fact, you think that folks who used to use Coinbase to get access to Bitcoin decide, you know what, I'm just going to use Fidelity, and Fidelity is going to be their own custodian, by the way, and I'm just going to go through, through them, well, then this is actually bad for uh, Coinbase because you wouldn't need to go get yourself a Coinbase account to get access to it. His bet, of course, and I think the, the way the market's thinking is that more people that just get involved in, in crypto in any way ultimately uh, nerves to the benefit of a, of a Coinbase. Yeah, and maybe the people that are with Coinbase, I, I hate to call them early adopters because you know and I know and our, a lot of our viewers know Bitcoin is, is not new at this point. Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's been around for more than a decade. And so, you know, people, they've got their, their trusted thing. Maybe the newbies will come in. But, Andrew, what do you think about, about Wall Street writ large? The J.P. Morgans, I mean, Jamie Dimon has bashed Bitcoin at nearly every chance he can. Now they're kind of getting into the game. What do you, where do you see the, the Morgan Stanleys, the JPMs, the Goldmans? What's their role in all of this? Look, I think they'll all be playing. In, in, to, the, to the extent you believe that crypto not only is here to stay, but is, becomes a major asset class, right? Right now we're talking, what, $900 billion, trillion dollar market cap, if you will. If you think this grows exponentially, Wall Street is going to follow the money, as Wall Street always does. If, in fact, you think this becomes is a, is a niche business, and I would argue it's already uh, you know, reached escape velocity, uh, then you could argue that maybe Wall Street doesn't pay too much attention to it. But there's lots of different commodities, obviously, uh, some smaller and some bigger than others, that various Wall Street players uh, play in and others that they don't. I think that's what you're going to see with crypto. And, of course, the big question, as you were just discussing with Kate Rooney, is what comes next? Is Ethereum the next one? Uh, you know, how many lawsuits are going to have to happen uh, before the SEC gets behind a, an Ethereum ETF? I think you're going to see a series of lawsuits, in fact, because when you really do read through the ruling today, it was, as Brian Armstrong said in our interview, and we'll show more of that uh, tomorrow on Squawk, that it was just a, it was a begrudging uh, decision. And this was not, uh, you know, left to their own devices. Yeah. I'm not sure this is the outcome that uh, he would have had, Gary Gensler would have had. And it's been a fight for a while. I did a, I did a fireside chat in 2019 with SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, and she was advocating for it back then. That was not quite four years ago. And, you right. know, Andrew, I, I don't, I don't want to oversell this, I guess, because I, I know you guys have a huge show tomorrow morning on it, by the way. But I kind of feel like this is, this is, crypto's coming out party in a weird way because kind of like sports betting getting legalized or something like that right. once the bitcoin etf is approved as it was today and fidelity is now in the game uh i think the crypto doubters might have to go find something else to doubt i think it's going to be very hard to doubt crypto now whether crypto has to become a hundred thousand dollars you know whether bitcoin yeah. goes to a hundred thousand yeah, dollars totally different totally different thing Woods right totally different else. different question but i think by by, by all means, crypto is now going to be part of the, uh, the larger conversation. Hard, hard to imagine it isn't. And I think Gensler's... I think this will be a historic day in that regard. Yeah, I think so, too. I'm not saying it's the golden spike for the railroads or something like that, Andrew. But this, right. this puts it there where people who are a little bit intimidated 
by crypto. Maybe they don't understand crypto. In fact, I'm going to I have a poll that I did on on X, Andrew. I'm going to show you the results of it and I'll get your comment if you have one as well. But it kind of goes to the point. And I basically just asked our viewers out there, or my followers on X, kind of like, what do you where, where is your interest in Bitcoin? Right. And I basically said, you know, I love it, own it. Right. I'm skeptical, but interested or I would not touch it. OK, so I gave people three options like it slash own it. Need to learn more. Wouldn't touch it. Here are the results. Thirty seven percent love it and or own it. About half, a little more than half, so they wouldn't touch it. But 11 percent said need to learn more. And I bring this up, Andrew, because I do wonder, kind of like, you know, certain cars or whatever they may be. I wonder how much more interest there is just because Fidelity is going to start selling a beat, you know, Bitcoin ETF. Well, look, and that's good. The next leg of this is all of these companies are going to be promoting it. You're going to see, I imagine you'll see advertising on CNBC and in the Wall Street Journal and in all sorts of publications as people are trying to sell these ETFs, physically sell the ETFs. And so there's going to be more money poured into trying to educate. Uh, some people would argue promote uh, these things. There'll be skeptics and naysayers, I imagine, as well. But nonetheless, there's just going to be more energy and more money uh, focused on this. Yeah. And that would lead to probably more interest. We'll see. Well, yeah, now that it's an ETF, if you want to own it, it's a little bit easier. If you don't want to own it, it's just like any other ETF, right? right. Don't own it. If you don't want to exactly. own tech, don't own it. Andrew Ross Sorkin, I know you got to get up for work in like four hours, so we're going to let you go. Andrew, thank you. Thank you. All right. Programming Thanks. note, you can catch the full interview with Brian Armstrong. That, of course, tomorrow on Squawk Box, but he's not the only one that's going to be on the program. You got Anthony Pomp, you got Michael Schoenstein, you got Kathy Wood of ARC, and Michael Novogratz as well. Big lineup, Squawk Box tomorrow morning as well. All right. Let's take a look at what happened to your money in the stock market today. It was a pretty good day, not a great day, but green across the board. Dow up a half a percent, SP a little bit more, NASDAQ up three quarters of 1%. On to your stud and dud of the day, the big winner. Intuitive Surgical, the robotic surgery maker, up 10.3%. More people are letting Intuitive's robots perform. I hope they're letting them. What if they weren't letting them and the robots are still doing the surgery? That, that, that's a movie. All right, Quest Diagnostics, that was your dud of the day, down 3.5%. All right, let's get a quick look at stock futures, see how things may be shaping up. Thinly traded, mixed market. All right, we are just getting started up next. The latest on Boeing's blowout, what the CEO had to say about it exclusively on CNBC. Plus, here's a riddle. What do NVIDIA and In-N-Out Burger have in common? Now, if you're British, you might say they both sell chips, mate. But that's not the answer. But we have the answer coming up. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release. 
with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back. Boeing CEO speaking out today in an exclusive interview with Phil LeBeau. This follows the terrifying midair blowout on an Alaska Airlines 737 MAX 9 jet. Phil joining us now from out west. Phil, how is CEO David Calhoun going to steer Boeing forward? Uh, Well, a big part of it is figuring out, A, what happened, and then, B, how to keep it from happening again. That part about keeping it from happening again For now, it focuses on the grounded 737 MAX 9s. Remember, there are 171 of them around the world, the bulk of them flown by Alaska and United. There is is an inspection process that has not yet been finalized. There are discussions between Boeing and the FAA about what exactly the engineers need to do at those airlines in order to ensure that the door plugs are 100% where they should be in terms of specifications. Remember, both Alaska and United found loose bolts when they started doing uh, initial inspections on their grounded MAX 9s. Here's Dave Calhoun talking earlier today about the importance of figuring out what went wrong with those grounded planes. I'm confident that that process will not only uh, prevent accident, but maybe more importantly, the data we collect from each and every one of those inspections, the data we collect will inform all of the actions that we have to take as a company. Remember, there were no serious injuries on this uh, incident that happened Friday night on Alaska Airlines. That's very fortunate. Had somebody been sitting right next to where the door plug was sucked off of the plane, it might be a far different story. And believe me, Dave Calhoun and the executives at Boeing are well aware of how fortunate they are, does not diminish how serious they are taking the situation. Earlier today, Pete Buttigieg, the uh, Secretary of Transportation, was asked about his initial thoughts on how Boeing and its suppliers are dealing with this situation. My sense from speaking to Boeing leadership is they understand the gravity of this, uh, but we're going to continue, and FAA, I know, will continue with a very, very strict and rigorous level of oversight uh, to make sure of that. Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, our concern and and our uh, fidelity is not to uh, the success of any company. Uh, It is to the safety of the traveling public. As you take a look at shares of Boeing, yes, they were up a little bit today after being down more than 10% uh, Monday and Tuesday. Keep in mind, this is a company that currently builds 38 MAX planes per month. The plan is to increase that production at this facility here in Renton, Washington, and also up at a new line that's being added in Everett, Washington, up to 50 per month by 2025-2026. We asked Dave Calhoun today, Brian, if that is still the plan. And he said, look, we're in a quiet period before earnings. We're not going to talk about what our guidance is, short-term or long-term. I get that. You get that. Uh, But it is a question that some on Wall Street are asking. Will Boeing be able to stick with its long-term guidance of building 50 737 maxes per month in the 2025-2026 time frame? Brian, back to you. And we'll see if any customers say maybe we we would want another jet. Uh, Phil, and we know you've got a plane to catch, so we're going to let you go. Phil LeBeau. Long day for him. Thank you very much. All right, on deck, and maybe another tomorrow's news tonight because there's a huge report out tomorrow for your money. We'll talk about it. Plus, don't call it a comeback. The Mag 7 staying hot. Katie Stockton here 
why one of those seven really sticks out to her. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to Last Call. After a brief little scare to start the year, the so-called magnificent Steven stocks are back to being magnificent. NVIDIA hit another record today. Alphabet, a 52-week high. Similar story with Meta. Meta, by the way, hasn't traded this high in more than two years. Also a good day for Microsoft. Shares there are less than two bucks away from their record high. The money just keeps coming into these same stocks, even as many strategists have said the markets are going to finally start broadening out. Now, to be fair... That has happened a bit. We saw small caps rally at the end of last year. But so far this year, the MAG-7 has outperformed the S&P 500 Equal Weighted Index. Let's talk about all this and maybe go inside those stocks with chart guru Katie Stockton, founder and managing partner at Fairlead Strategies, also a CNBC contributor. Katie, before we get to the one name or two names that you really love, is there any stopping these stocks overall in the charts? You know, Brian, I don't think you have to be too, too picky with these names. They all have improving momentum and they're all still in long term uptrends, except arguably Tesla, if you include it. So, uh, you know, with the recent pullback that we've seen in the complex, we did see widespread short term oversold conditions return. And then just this week, we now have upturns in response to that. So even Apple, which, as you probably notice, is really suffering from a negative sentiment environment right now, seems to be holding support around its rising 200 day move moving average. And there's quite a few others that have held up not only above their 50-day moving averages, but even their 20-day moving averages. So the price action is really pretty constructive from a technical perspective. Mm -hmm. And the sell signals that occurred close to year end seem to be working off pretty well. What, What do you think is wrong with Apple? You know, it it is unloved right now. But for me, from a technical perspective, it had resistance. It was resistance right around 198. And that's still a hurdle for the stock. I think the pullback occurred at a very natural level for it. And we all talk about being willing to buy into weakness or buy the dip. Well, here's the dip. And then all of a sudden, sentiment's so bad that nobody wants to touch it. But I do think that will shift as we get more confidence behind the mega cap complex. Perhaps Apple won't be the outperformer that it has been at times in the past, but we're seeing breakouts elsewhere. Just look at NVIDIA, which is one that I own. It's pushed out of its uh, Mm -hmm. very long-term trading range. It was a several-month trading range. That's a major breakout for NVIDIA, which of course was a big outperformer last year. And then also we have minor breakouts in the likes of Meta. Alphabet is breaking out as well. That's one that we featured, in fact, today in one of our newsletters. There is really some very promising action. And now with the room that we have to those resistance levels, including 198 for Apple, I think it's actually pretty compelling. Well, I was teasing that there was one of the seven that I think you liked more than the others. 
Is it, is it NVIDIA? Is it Meta? Is it some other name? Well, as mentioned, I don't think you need to be too picky, but we, we even like Microsoft. Microsoft seems to be pushing out of its consolidation phase, which followed a major cup and handle formation breakout. That's just basically a long-term breakout to new all-time highs. So we, we can make a case for a lot of them. We chose Alphabet for our feature today simply because it has a good deal of room to next resistance, and it also has upside to a targeted objective from a triangle formation that seems to be resolving to the upside. These triangle patterns, they show basically a, a compression and volatility, and then it gets kind of released from that uh, situation, and that tends to see additional upside momentum behind the stock. So we like the triangle formation in Alphabet as one that stands out. But as mentioned, mm -hmm. where breakouts are occurring, I think you have a positive technical catalyst to take advantage of. Yeah, the money just keeps pouring in, and the charts, to your point, look good. Katie Stockton, thank you very much. All right, meantime, the markets and your money about to get a big piece of data tomorrow. It is the December consumer inflation number. Now, if it's cool, it could play into the Fed will cut rates earlier than expected story. If it's hot, well, maybe look out below. We've also got some bank numbers on deck, and there is much thus to discuss. And let's bring in Jason Trenard. He is chairman and CEO of Strategus Research. I believe your debut on last call. Jason, where you been? Yes, happy, to have, happy to have you. It's only been like a year. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. All right. So CPI tomorrow. What is your expectation either way? Well, I, we're pretty close to the consensus, uh, Brian. We think 3.2% year over year is probably the right number, 3.8 uh, on on core, um, which is, I, I would say, the Fed should feel good, uh, it clearly does, about the progress it's made on inflation. Of course, we're, we're a little worried that there's a little premature uh, triumphalism on the part of the Fed. They may be taking victory laps too, too early, but clearly the trend in inflation is is very positive for stocks. You know, I guess here's my confusion around inflation and kind of listen, there's this inflation is always political, especially right now. And it can be confusing. You hear inflation is coming down. Inflation is not coming down. The rate of inflation is coming down. We're still adding, even if we're in two and a half, three percent, Jason, are we not still adding those levels of price increases on top of prices that were up 30 percent on average over the last three years? That's why people are getting angry still out there and frustrated because the $20 hamburger isn't going back to 15. It's just going up less than it was, correct? Correct. And um, absolutely correct. And I think it's very, I, I think the chances of another wave of inflation by the end of this year are actually quite high. And the reason why I believe that is that in many ways, the Federal Reserve is fighting the federal government to bring inflation down. Uh, the federal government ran a deficit last year of 7% of GDP. Uh, we've only done that three other times since the end of World War II. And in each instance, uh, the reason why the deficit grew so greatly was because the unemployment rate was above 7%. We're running massive budget deficits at full employment, uh, which is uh, extremely unusual and greatly increases the chances not only that um, we're not going to see a decline in prices. Uh, I would say that's ex extraordinarily unlikely unless something terrible happens. But you could see a reacceleration in the rate of inflation, uh, in my opinion, by the end of this year. Yeah, because we've seen instances historically, Jason, have we not, where things look like they're cooling off and then they sort of 
They sort of bounced back up. We saw it, I think, in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, also after World War II, by the way, which is why in, in 1948 and 49, everybody was so angry at the president, because, Harry Truman, because prices were elevated coming off the war as well. So this, the war on inflation, has it been won? No, I, I would say it would be entirely too ambitious to say that it's over. And that's what makes me a bit nervous. Um, we've taken a look at the last 120 years. Our chief economist, Don Rissmiller, looked at every instance in which um, the 30 largest uh, countries had a wave of inflation over 6%. And in about nine out of every 10 times, you had a second wave of over 6% uh, 12 to 18 months later. Uh, and that has a lot to do with just the, uh, the behavioral aspects of the way people think about prices, the way people negotiate wages and their salaries. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, um, it, it's very difficult, as I said before, when the federal government is not uh, not doing much uh, to uh, to slow things down. As a matter of fact, they're they're adding fuel uh, to a potential uh, inflationary fire. Yeah, but you could say stuff on Twitter. And, you know, it's fine. Jason Trenert, uh, Strategus Research. We'll leave that convo for another day. Jason, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, folks. By the way, if you see any prices meaningfully coming down, let us know. We'll show it. We want to show prices coming down. All right, coming up. Could we soon have or be primed to have a new TV ad king? That's next. All right, let's get to tomorrow's news tonight. First up, OpenAI reportedly in talks with news organizations like CNN and Fox to license its content for its AI programs. The company would use articles, videos, and other digital media from the outlets in order to make its chat GPT more accurate and up-to-date. OpenAI is currently facing a lawsuit from the New York Times over copyright infringement, alleging its content appears on chat GPT without permission. OpenAI says it is also in talks with dozens of other publications to potentially license content. Next up, a milestone text message. SpaceX announcing it has successfully sent text messages using its Starlink satellites. The company used T-Mobile's network to send the messages. SpaceX has been working to connect phones directly to satellites and is aiming to launch broader text services later on this year. These successful texts come after the first six Starlink satellites equipped with the tech were launched last week. And finally, some growth in Netflix's ad-based tier. Netflix's ad plan now has over 23 million global monthly users. That according to the company's ad head, Amy Reinhardt. That is up from just 15 million two months ago. Netflix says the ad tier subscriptions now account for 30% of all new signups in the countries where it is offered. The ad tier launched in November 2022. It is seven bucks a month here in the U.S. All right, staying on the subject of ads, we are guessing most, if not all of you watching or listening right now, are Amazon Prime members. More than half the country is. And maybe you also watch Amazon Prime Video. And so, as you may have heard, Amazon is making a bit of a change. Starting on January 29th, the company will switch from Prime Video to a completely ad-based platform. That's going to happen automatically. But if you don't like ads, you'll have the option to pay an extra $3 a month to have a no ad version. Now, this may not be a big deal to you, 3 bucks a month, but it is a massive potential deal to the TV ad market because it could turn Amazon 
into the largest ad-supported streaming service, even rivaling Netflix. Let's talk about it now with CEO Mark Douglas of Mountain. He is joining us from the Consumer Electronics Show live in Las Vegas. Is this, did we oversell it in typical TV fashion, Mark? Or is this a big deal? It, it's a big deal. I think it shows that Amazon has a lot of confidence in their ability to monetize. So if you look at a lot of these TV networks, that Netflix coming into the market for TV ads, Disney Plus, and even Apple has announced plans. That's created kind of a market share war, but I think in Amazon's case, they think they can monetize better than those other companies, and so they're just switching the whole customer base over to ads in one, one swoop, and it's, it's a big deal, for sure. Well, is there, as a, as a marketing guru, is there a risk to, I don't think anybody's gonna leave Amazon because they're probably watching Prime because they're getting boxes delivered, but a lot of people don't like ads. Is there a risk in doing this sort of automatically that people are, you know, it's kind of nickel and dime people. Yeah, I mean, people don't like, it's not that they don't like ads, they just don't like bad ads. If the ads are entertaining, then they, and they, and they are really targeted at the right consumers, then they love them, and Amazon has a lot of data to target them at the right consumers. What sometimes people forget, Amazon has another ad business that's over 30 billion in revenue on the Amazon website, and that business is collecting a tremendous amount of data that they can now apply to the TV business. So if they show people products they're interested in, I, I don't think people mind them. And if they do, you know, $3 is not a lot of money to spend, you know, on top of, I think it's over $100 for Amazon Prime annually. Well, it also, I think, tells us, because a lot of millions of people, as we just said on Netflix, are choosing to pay less, but are willing to watch ads. Uh, uh, the, the TV ad is dead, long live the TV ad. Yeah, it's it's been that 2023 was back to the future for the TV industry with all, you know, now this Amazon announcement right starting 2024, Netflix ramping up their business. And so, yeah, I mean, I think consumers are expecting that, yeah, I'm going to be watching ads while I watch TV. And increasingly, there's not going to be that many networks to watch them on. The industry is going to consolidate. But I think the thing to look out for back on the topic of Amazon is this is a company, they have an incredibly sharp management team. And they are, I've heard rumors that for every dollar that is spent on the NFL on other networks that Amazon is getting $2 advertising dollars. They double the monetization of the networks. And again, that then drives, well, let's just get everybody over to ads so we can apply that kind of math. It's Jeff Bezos' world and we just live in it, or at least I wish on his giant <laughs> yeah. sailing yacht. Mark Douglas of Mountain. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy Vegas. Be careful. Mark, thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. All right. Up next. We have our eye on one smallish company, smallish, that could be a canary in the coal mine for the EV industries. If you don't believe us, you're going to want to hear the story with Herb Greenberg next. All right, welcome back. Could one EV parts suppliers market slide be a bit of a canary in the coal mine for the EV revolution? Hear us out. Shares of small cap air test systems crumbled today. The stock fell 17%. The company cut revenue guidance by up to 25% for the fiscal year. 
you almost never see that kind of sales cut on Wall Street. Now, you may not be familiar with AIR. We weren't. I'm not going to pretend I knew who they were. They make semiconductors that go into EVs and things like autonomous driving. AIR CEO cited EV demand as the reason for the cut, saying, quote, we have seen how the slowing of the growth rate in the electric vehicle market has had a negative impact on the timing of several current and new customers, unquote. AIR expects the growth slowdown to lead to a delay in new orders. We've never talked about AIR before because they are a smallish cap company valued at just over our threshold of $500 million. But we did wonder, is AIR maybe just a one-off issue? And it could be. Or maybe kind of the start of something more. Joining us now with more is editor of the Herb Greenberg on the street Substack. Herb Greenberg himself also a CNBC contributor. And I want to point out, because people always say I'm so critical of EVs and whatever. There is still a growth rate. They are still growing. And I think that's an important point to mention. But when I see a stock fall 17% in one day on this, how can we not pay attention? Brian, I was really ready to just, you know, hop on that bandwagon and say exactly what you just said about, is this a canary in the coal mine? This is a company I was ready to red flag a week ago until I actually did some work on it and found out, well, well, wait a second now. You know, it has some issues. It's been struggling. If you look at the stock price, this is a stock that is down more than, it's lost more than half its value over the past four or five months for a variety of reasons. Part of it is the the glut in chips. They make silicon carbide chips uh, that are used in um, in, uh, in in EVs, and uh, they also basically have been you know trying to deal with that. They've been dealing with lower auto sales in general because of lower interest rates. So when I looked around today, I just put up a piece on Substack. In fact, the headline is you know for every seller there's a buyer. The reason people are buying this stock is not because they think there's a real canary in the coal mine here. They think that this is actually the bottom and getting closer to the bottom. And that this actually, if you look around, what you have here is you don't have technological obsolescence. You don't have any real fundamental flaws of the company. If you go through the earnings call, the company is basically telling you that they have new customers that will be coming in because these are deferred purchases. So I think it's really important in a situation like this to try to see what's really going on. It's arguable. I'm talking to a friend who owns the stock and actually was buying more today. His whole point is that this is a company that other chip makers or other automakers will be flocking to because, you know, um, they have a good product. And I want to be clear because I've been critical of a lot of parts of these this industry. And as somebody who's dr- raced cars for over two decades, driven cars, owned an EV, invested in things, blah, 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 not, not stocks. Obviously, I can't do that. But I, I just I'm trying to get through the message and you're helping that this is something that's happening, it will happen, it will continue to happen, but you and I have been doing this a long time, I have not been doing it as long as you have, my friend, but you go through these manias with new technologies, and there are companies who are winners, there are companies who are losers, and I think about companies like Global Crossing, if anyone remembers that name, right? The internet was being created, they're laying the cable that basically built, by the way, we still use their products, but the company went bye-bye. We gotta separate industries from stocks, do we not? We always have to, and that's always the disconnect, especially in Silicon Valley and especially with technology. But I think what you also have to look to here is something the management said on the call, which I thought was actually interesting. Look, I'm always raising red flags over these companies, but I also look for the other side of the story to try to be fair. And one thing they pointed out was 
A, that people were way overly enthusiastic about what the future sale of EVs would be this year. And so that led to some issues. But more than that, they pointed out to where other sales are. You know, we always talk about the U.S. They talk about China and they talk about the, you know, the, the size of sales of EVs in China and where their test equipment is going to chips that are going to be used in cars that are sold in China. Yeah, that's it. It's just a, it's a new name. It's an interesting stock. It's an interesting story. And it's one to watch. We're just trying to educate people on things. Pay attention just, to it, Brian. That's it's, it. On a valuation basis, this thing realistically is very cheap going forward. If indeed all goes according to what the bulls believe. Well, I can't believe you just said that. You're like the kid in the life commercial from the 70s who hates everything. And then you give him the life soon as he, he likes it. Hey, Mikey, it's unbelievable. He's yeah. And look what happened to life. Yeah, he, Herb Greenberg actually likes something, sort of. Herb, thank you. Appreciate it. Sure. All right, coming up, how to win the interview. CNBC Make It, launching courses for us all you job seekers looking to land your dream job. And that is next. Time for your daily RBI, and today we're focusing on work and the new list of the best places to work in America. Job and pay company Glassdoor out with their annual rankings of the best companies to work for in America. They scored it on a five-point scale using factors like pay and benefits, culture and values, work-life balance, and diversity and inclusion. One big caveat to Glassdoor's list. They only considered companies with more than 1,000 employees and at least 75 reviews on their website. So these are big companies. There might not be some great small company out there that you love, they're not on the list. That said, let's name the 10 best places to work in America. And as always, counting you down 10 to 1 to add to the drama. Number 10, Fidelity Investments. Number 9, 2020 Companies. That's a Texas-based brand marketing company. Deltek, a Virginia-based software company. Number 7, VMware. Number 6, In-N-Out Burger. Number 5, Procore Tech, a California-based software construction company. 4 is MathWorks. 3 is ServiceNow. 2 is NVIDIA. This was the riddle. What do NVIDIA and In-N-Out Burger have in common? And I made that joke about, or bad joke about British people saying chips. They both make chips. No, they're both on the list. And number one, and a little surprising maybe, consulting firm Bain and Company. Bain scoring a 4.8 out of 5 on Glassdoor surveys. Congratulations to Bain. Now, as usual, a lot of tech companies make the list, probably because the pay is good. And you could work remotely much of the time. By the way, if you're wondering where the Mag 7 is, well, NVIDIA was on there. But Apple, Google, and Microsoft did not do as well. Microsoft was the highest of those three coming in at number 18. Glassdoor, thank you. And by the way, wouldn't we all just love to see the worst 10 companies? Glassdoor, if you're out there, do it. We'll throw it up there. I think that, the worst 10K, they scored a .3 out of five. That would be really random. But interesting. All right, staying on the jobs beat and going from the best places to work to getting the job at maybe one of those places. We have got a special Wednesday edition of Make It tonight. This one with a bit of a twist. Our Make It team is launching a new online course series called Smarter. And they've got expert tips and advice on how to ace your job interview. Watch. Job searching is heartbreaking and soul crushing. I was right there. I was struggling. I didn't know how to get a job. Didn't know how to do interviews. If I had someone like me in my corner, I think I would have gotten to my dreams a lot sooner than I did. All right, you can register for the class right now by scanning that QR code on your screen. 
By the way, there is an early bird discount. But let's talk about more of what is in this and bring in host and CBC Make It Senior work editor, Hannah Howard. Hannah, welcome to the program. Thank you. I love it. You were on a power lunch. You're a Virginian. I sort of am a Virginian. Tyler and Kelly, it's just a Virginia love fest. All right, so you were talking to all these experts about that. You get people, you know, palms are sweaty going in for that job interview. What are some of the key tips? So some of the key tips are really like easy things that you overlook a lot of the time. The first two to five minutes are the most important of any interview. You want to be on time. You want to, you know, make a really good first impression because that's what people remember. One of our experts talks about workplace psychology, and he talks about this thing called the fundamental attribution error, which is when people make a first impression of you, that's what they remember. That's what they're always going to remember. So if you come in late, if you come in all disheveled Mm -hmm. and not knowing what to talk about, that's what they're going to remember, even if later on you sort of pull it together. The saying, there's no second chance to make a first impression, apparently is correct. Let's put that graphic back up there if we can, because one of the don'ts was be overconfident. And I can imagine that goes that first two to five minutes where if you come in, I think my, my generation would call it cocky. Sure. That's not good. Yeah. If you come in too hot, if you're talking over your interviewer, if you're assuming you know more than they do, you're like, you've found the perfect person, it's not necessarily going to go so well. Yeah, you're lucky to have me here, right. you know. There's some other ones, though, that are not, that are a little more, this is interesting to me, because back in my day, we used to write a, we had to write a cover letter. Mm. I mean, you know, it was on a typewriter, by the way. (laughs) And it was like, dear sir, you know, and whatever. And then you try to introduce yourself. This is interesting. Unless it's required. Your your experts say don't do it. Yeah. Um, They say for most jobs that require a college degree, unless it's like a writing position, something where you really need to be showing that you can communicate well, then the cover letter isn't that important. You can spend a lot of time crafting the perfect cover letter for something that not necessarily every recruiter is going to read. Most recruiters don't read your cover letter. Sometimes they'll send it on to the hiring manager or Mm -hmm. the person who's interviewing you. But for a lot of positions, it's just not necessary. And I thought it was interesting. They said it's okay to use AI, but I don't want to give everything away because we've got a course, right? This is a new, new, big new initiative by CBC, Smarter. Talk to us about this course. I think we gave just enough. We want to give people a taste but not the whole meal. (laughs) So this course is called How to Ace Your Job Interview. It's 100 minutes of video content from our three fantastic instructors, and it's broken up into five-minute lessons that are bite-sized. You can take them at your own pace. It also comes with a companion workbook with additional exercises and scripts. Is it live? It's not live. You get a whole comprehensive guide when you register, um, and it's all there for you to take at your own. So you don't have to worry about missing it, right? It's not a specific time like a college class, like don't be nervous. This is supposed to be something that we can just use when we want. Yeah, you can't show up late to this to this course. We like it. Well, that's good. Then we'll make a good first impression, won't we? Hannah Howard, thank you very much. Great stuff. Look forward to seeing it. You're smarter. But do I get a discount code as an employee? Don't answer Uh, that. We're on air. Hannah, thank you. All right, again, you can register for the course right now by scanning that QR code. Or is there a QR code? I guess there's not. All right. Is the end? There it is. All right. It is time now for Back in Time. And speaking of media, you know what happened 24 years ago today? The worst merger of all time happened. America Online and Time Warner are combining. The surprise blockbuster deal announced this morning will create a company with a total market value of about $350 billion. 
literally worst deal of all time. That's all I have to say. But really, all I have to say is Tyler Matheson. Was that corduroy? Thanks for watching, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow night. Take care. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.